You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. So I'm going to take one step back from the Psalms and look at, at them as a whole before we jump into Psalm 127 this morning. And let me just pose a question to you um, that has to do with the Psalms. The question would go like this. What role have the Psalms played in the history of God's people? Now just think about that for a minute. Every summer, we're gonna spend five or six or seven weeks working through Psalms. And there's a reason for that because they have played a very distinct and important role in the life of God's people. And here is one of the answers to that question. What role have the Psalms played in the history of God's people? Here's one answer. The Psalms are the primary tool that God uses to teach his people to pray. The Psalms are one of the primary tools that God has gifted to the church so that the church can grow and mature in, in their prayer life. Now, I don't know about you, but I constantly feel a need inside of me of like, God, I wanna grow up in my prayer life. I, I want more of that. I want a deeper prayer life and more intimate prayer life and more honest prayer life. I want all of that. And if your heart wants all of that, the Psalms are, are God's main answer, his main tool that he's put in your hand to grow in that. Listen to Eugene Peterson talk about this. He says it this way. The consensus on this uh, throughout the church's praying life is impressive. If we wish to develop in the life of faith, to mature in our humanity and to glorify God with our entire heart, mind, soul, and strength, the Psalms are necessary. We cannot bypass the Psalms. They are God's gift to train us in prayer that is comprehensive and honest. Now here is prayer that's not comprehensive and honest. It says, not a series of more or less sincere verbal poses that we, might, uh, that we, that we think might please the Lord. If we are willfully ignorant of the Psalms, we are not thereby excluded from praying. We can still pray, we can still do those things, but we will uh, we'll have to hack our way through formidable country by trial and error and with inferior tools. So how do we use the Psalms then to, to grow in our prayer life? Here's his answer to that. How do the Psalms train us to pray? The practice of Christians in praying the Psalms is straightforward. Simply pray through the Psalms, Psalm by Psalm, regularly. That's it. Open our Bibles to the book of Psalms and just pray them sequentially, regularly, faithfully across a lifetime. This is how most Christians for most of the Christian centuries have matured in prayer. There's nothing fancy about it. Just do it, he says. So before we do anything else, I just want you to receive that encouragement. This is gonna be our last Sunday in the Psalms. And I want you to receive that encouragement. Use the Psalms to grow in your prayer life. Just Every day, open up to, the, to a psalm and, and pray a psalm. I love what Kevin Hill said the first Sunday in July when we started this summer psalms uh, series. Uh, he said, the psalms have been given to us by God so that we could then give them back to God. And I love that. I think that is what the psalms are for. God's given them to us so that we could give them back to him as we pray through the psalms, as we grow in our prayer life uh, through the psalms. I just wanna encourage you, open the Bible to the psalms on a consistent basis. Pray those psalms to God. You're seeing models of people praying, expressing their heart, pouring out their heart to God. Okay, now to Psalm 127. Jimmy preached uh, this this chapter uh, back in July, but he just covered the first two verses, verses one and two. So I wanna take a stab uh, today at the last three verses, uh, verses three through five. So we're gonna look at those today. And I, I think it's actually a timely moment to look at them. Um, as kids start back uh, the school year, in a lot of ways, the, the beginning of a school year marks kind of the year in the life of a, of a kiddo. And so I think it's a it's a helpful day to think about these sorts of things that the last half of Psalm 127 presents to us. And I really just wanna draw out three observations from Psalm 127. Um, most of these are gonna have to do with, with our, our, how we see and how we, how we operate next to children. And, and Psalm 127 is gonna have something to say about our disposition our duty toward children, and then our dependence upon God. So let me just work these out with you. So first of all, Psalm 127, it affects our disposition. It has something to say about how we see kids, how we see children, how we feel about children. It has something to say about that. Now, it's interesting just to consider culture and, and culture around us. 
Culture is just generally speaking, it's what people do most of the time. It's a way of seeing, a way of operating, a way of thinking. It's, it's the way we see the world. And at any given time, part of what culture is doing is discipling us. So, so you're a part of a culture. Every person that's ever existed has been a part of a culture. It's the time and place that they live. And, and that particular culture that, that anyone at any given time is in the middle of, part of what that culture doing is informing and it's seeding into our hearts a way of seeing the world, a way of seeing God, a way of seeing ourselves, a way of seeing money and possessions, a way of seeing work, a way of seeing everything about our life and a way of seeing children, a way of seeing kids. Our culture is informing us. It's, it's telling us something about uh, children. And one of the myths that our culture is continually peddling for us to believe is, is the myth that goes something like this. Children equal a burden. That, that's one of the dominant ways that our culture sees kids. Children equal a burden. And there's plenty of, of things that we could point to to substantiate that. Let me just point to one thing. Let, let me just go to birth rates or, or the fertility rate in America. In the 1950s, the fertility rate, that's how many women or how many children each woman would have. The fertility rate in the 1950s was just shy of four. That would be four children per woman. And uh, so it was, it was 3.8, I think is the exact number. So just shy four. You fast forward now 50 or 60 years and the fertility rate is r just shy of two now in America. So that's, that's been roughly cut in half in the last 50 or 60 years. And it's actually another report just came out on that in 2018. You can find articles in the New York Times, the LA Times about this very issue. In 2017, uh, the US hit an all time low in the fertility rate. And in 2018, we doubled down on that and hit another all-time low in 2018. So, so you can see that in our, and by the way, a, a fertility rate of, of two is the replacement rate. It's, it's like how you keep a population steady below two and you get to have a population momentum issue at work. Above two, your population momentum begins to do this. Below two, it, it begins to do this over time. So there's serious things at stake in that. But, but the point I'm trying to make is that we live in a culture that increasingly sees children as burdens to be endured, as liabilities to kind of suffer through, as opposed to blessings to enjoy. Now contrast the, the culture's way of seeing children equal a burden, contrast that with the mood that the Bible presents with, with children. And you can just sample Psalm 127 for a good feel for how the Bible views kids. In Psalm 127, starting in verse three, it says this, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. So just, I mean, just see that children are not seen as liabilities there. They're seen as assets, as a way to enrich your life, as a way to be protected, as a way to be cared for in your life. Verse five, blessed. That word blessed is referring to like a state of being. Some translations will just say it this way. Happy is the man. Happy. Satisfied is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So if, if the culture's view of kids is children equal a burden, the Bible's view of kids are children equal a blessing. That, that's the way the Bible views kids is they're a blessing. Uh, think about God, some of God's first words to our first parents in Genesis chapter one. If you remember back there, he, he blesses our first parents. And he blesses them by saying, be fruitful and multiply. Like enjoy this gift of kids that I'm gonna give you, enjoy them. They're, they're one of the ways that I'm going to enrich your life. So, so enjoy this blessing. Children equal a blessing in the Bible. Now notice verse three. And, and let me just reread verse three for you one more time in Psalm 127. Look at what it says there, behold, Perfect children are a heritage from the Lord. You see that? No, no, it doesn't say that. Behold, healthy children are a heritage from the Lord. No, that's, that's, that's not what it says. Behold, successful children are a heritage from the Lord. Behold, children that have figured out life and kind of have it together and doing the thing and like making... Those children are a heritage from the Lord. No, no, that's not what it says, is it? It's a categorical statement. Behold, children, that's the category, all kids. 
All, all children are a heritage from the Lord. Uh, Kevin Hill, he mentioned back in early July when he preached through uh, the psalm that he worked through that day, he mentioned Grant. And uh, Grant is such a precious uh, kiddo. Uh, if, if you know Grant, Grant is severely disabled. And, uh, and one of the things that I, I have just grown to appreciate so much about Kevin is that Kevin has received Grant as a gift from God. And because he has received Grant as a gift from God, if Kevin were standing here talking to you about Grant, he would, he would be the first to tell you, Grant is one of the greatest blessings that God has given him. But behold, children, the, the whole category, children are a heritage from the Lord. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. So that, that leads to the question, do you view kids, do I view children the way that God views them? Do, do you view kids the way that God views them? Do, do, I, do I have the disposition, that the way of seeing, the, the, way of, the way of looking at kids that the Bible does? Now, he, just hear my heart in this. I, I am not saying that everyone in the room should have 14 kids, but I am saying many of us should have more than we do because many of us have developed a way of seeing kids that e kids equal burdens, that they're liabilities. They're, we just see them through an economic picture when that's not how the psalmist sees them. He sees them as blessings from the Lord. Maybe you could just ask yourself this question. When you watch a, a family of seven, eight, nine, ten 10 kids walk into a room, what, what instantly happens in your heart? Just ask yourself that question. And ask yourself the question, does it line up with Psalm 120? This is what God sees in that moment is there is a family and, and their quiver is full of arrows, but blessed is that family. And I just ask yourself the question, how, how far is your heart from that way of seeing that moment? Uh, one of the things I love about Isaac Tolson, uh, he has a boatload of girls. He has eight girls. And you know, one of the things I love about Isaac Tolson is, is when we talk about his family, he is so quick to say and to remind me, those kids are assets. They are arrows in his hands. They are not liabilities in his life. They are, they are, they are God's enrichment in his life, blessing in his life. Now, one of the reasons it's so important for us to see kids the way that God sees them is because it affects how we then see God. That just make this link. One reason why it's so important for us to have this, the, the disposition that the Bible has toward kids is because seeing and thinking about children the way God sees and thinks about children also helps you see the way God sees and thinks about us as his children. I, God doesn't look at you and think, well, there's another liability. That's another burden I'm gonna have to like shoulder up and like figure out how to work with. That is not the way God sees you. As one of his adopted kids, he looks at you and sees you as a great asset in his life, as a blessing to his heart. That's how God sees you, right? And the way that we see and think about kids around us is, is impacting how we perceive God looking at us. So Psalm 127 affects our disposition, it sees kids as a blessing, as a heritage from, a, from the Lord, as a reward from God. And here's the second thing Psalm 127 does. It informs our duty. It informs our duty, our duty toward children. Now look at verse four again. I, I love the imagery of verse four. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Now let me just draw out one observation from the imagery of kids being arrows, children being arrows. Arrows don't magically appear in nature. You know, if you're walking through the forest, you're walking through the woods somewhere, you're not going to look down in the ground and there magically find an arrow growing out of the ground. That's not the way arrows work. Arrows have to be formed from raw materials. So if you're gonna make an arrow, you're gonna cut down a limb somewhere and you're gonna sharpen your blade and you're gonna start to, to shape that limb. You're gonna cut a notch. You're gonna add feathers so that then the arrow can fly straight through the air, right? But arrows have to be formed. They're not naturally appearing things out there. And in the same way, that is great imagery for parenting. God has entrusted, if you're a parent, God has entrusted to you a limb. 
It's, a, it's raw material. And he's asking you to shape that raw material into a beautiful arrow. But there's shaping, there's cutting, there, there's forming that has to go on if you're gonna shape that raw limb into an arrow. And by extension, by the way, church, this is equally applicable for us as a, as a church family. Part of what God has asked us to do is stand in the gap between this generation and the next to make sure we corporately are shaping arrows, the next generation into, into arrows that will, that will fly straight. So this is a, a church-wide issue as well. So I wanna just spend a few minutes talking to you about parenting about our duty toward the next generation, toward our kids. And let me just start by saying parenting really does matter. A church receiving and accepting the responsibility for the next generation, that really does matter. If you remember back to Judges chapter two, Joshua and the elders have just, just died. And Joshua in a lot of ways was like the yardstick of faithfulness at that time. So, so Joshua, the elders die. And if you remember what happens there right after, the, in the next verse, it says, there arose a generation after them that did not know the Lord and did not know what the Lord had done for the people of Israel. Then in the, the very next verse, you find this generation that didn't know the Lord. You find them on their faces, worshiping Baal, the false God of that day. That's the trajectory that happens in Judges, right? And part of what we, we learn in, the, in Judges chapter two is that the only thing one generation needs to do for the next generation to be on their faces worshiping false gods is nothing. That's it. That's all one generation has to do for the next generation to be on their faces worshiping false gods. Nothing. We're always one generation away from all-out rebellion against God, just complete spiritual darkness, the triumph of evil. We're always one generation away from that, according to Judges chapter two. East of Eden, every person in every generation comes out of the, the womb with a heart spring-loaded to reject God. Every person in every generation comes out like that. And that means that every generation has to be re-evangelized with the good news of Jesus. Every single generation has to be re-evangelized. And over and over, the Bible shows us that the primary link between generation one and generation two is the parent-child link. That's the primary link from one generation to the next. The job of a parent, the job of the church is to stand between children and the ruin their hearts want the rejection of God that their heart wants and to say, no, follow us as we follow Jesus. It's to say, no, God is not an enemy for you to run from, but he's a good dad for you to love and trust and run to. Every generation has to be re-evangelized in that way. And this is what makes, this is what makes parenting such a sobering reality. And when you think about parenting, you know, it's just interesting to consider that you can't help but make a huge, deep impact into the heart of your kids. Just think of the purpose of parenting. Parents are designed by God to show their children a tangible picture of what it's like to live under the reign and rule of Jesus. That's your job as a parent, to give your children an experience of that a concrete example of what it looks like to actually live under the rule and reign of Jesus as they live under your rule and reign in your house. That's the job of a parent. And, and here's the sobering reality for every parent is that your kids will know you as parent long before they will know God as one. And what they know of you will shape how they see and how they think of him. Now just receive that from the Lord today. What a sobering responsibility. Your kids will know you as parent long before they know God as one. And what they know of you will shape how they think of him. And as a parent, you can't help but say something about God. Even if you're silent about him, you are screaming something about God. And may God gift us through the empowerment of the spirit to say right things about God. But right things about what it means to live under the reign and rule of Jesus. Now, there's a, a lot of places you could go in the Bible to get some direction on what it looks like um, to, to parent your, your children, what it would look like to, to move into this sort of your duty toward children. One of those places is Deuteronomy chapter six. And why don't you turn there, if you don't mind, just it would be really helpful to have that out and open there on your lap. And I, I wanna just read through this passage and make a few comments on it. 
Deuteronomy chapter six. It's one of those places in the Bible that I think every parent should have hidden in their heart. They know this passage, they've embraced this passage. Deuteronomy chapter six. Starting in verse four, it says this. Hear, O Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You, he's talking to parents, he's talking to, to, the, to the assembled people, to, to the church, you, parents, church, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Verse six, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. I love how this passage begins. The, the goal of parenting is to pass along a deep, vibrant love of Jesus. So what you're trying to do, you're trying to re-evangelize the next generation. It's to pass that deep, vibrant love of Jesus down. But this passage reminds us that we can't pass along what we don't possess. If you wanna pass along a deep love of Jesus, you actually have to possess a deep love of Jesus, which I think this just creates a really helpful, good time for every parent in the room, really every adult in the room, to ask yourself the question, is there a deep, vibrant love of Jesus in me? Is that there? Is it, is it seen and experienced when people come in and out of my life? Is there a deep, vibrant love of Jesus there? It's the, it's the greatest gift you could give your kids is that. It is, is a vibrant love of, of, of God. Is that there? And if not, what, what a wonderful time to take that before the Lord and ask him, God, would you, would you produce this in me? God, would you grow that in me? God, through the power of your spirit, would you breathe into me? What would you blow on that flame of a love of God in me so that it will burn brighter in my life? You, you can't pass along what you don't possess. He goes on in verse seven. So now in light of these things, he's commanded us that this should be on our heart. He says, verse seven, and you shall teach these things. You shall teach what I've commanded you. You shall teach this love of Jesus. You shall re-evangelize the next generation. You shall teach them diligently to your children. So parents are commissioned to take that deep love of Jesus that they possess and then to pass that along. Now the question becomes, how do we do that? How do we do that? And I think there's, there's three kind of primary ways you, you kind of see it in this, this passage. One, it says you shall teach them diligently to your children. So maybe one way we could talk about is that through formal instruction, through, through formal instruction. Formal instruction are intentional times that you're setting aside to talk about Jesus, the Bible, theology, money, temptation, sexuality, how to handle conflict, suffering, and, and the rest of what we experience in a fallen world. It, it's just intentional times set aside to talk about those things. And if you don't do it, who is going to do that? The culture's gonna do it. You, you know that. Your kids can't turn on the TV without being informed about all of those things. And so it's your job as a parent to be a better disciple maker than the culture is being. And the culture is always at it. It never sleeps in its disciple making. It's always trying to make a disciple of your kid. Through formal instruction, through intentional times, set aside to talk about about these things. Now, I, I wanna just take a quick moment here to make a case for you toward family devotions. Family devotions. Listen to Mark DeVries. He, he did an extensive survey in Protestant congregations about what was most helpful in the life of kids as they're growing up to grow into maturity, uh, especially maturity in Jesus. And listen to what he says. The particular family experiences most tied to greater maturity in their kids were the frequency with which an adolescent talked with his mother and father about faith. The frequency of family devotions and the frequency with which parents and children together were involved in efforts, formal or informal, to help other people. Now, when it comes to passing along a love of Jesus to the next generation, to re-evangelizing the next generation, there is no such thing as a magic bullet. There is no such thing. And at the same time, there are some practices though that are especially important to emphasize. There are practices that are more helpful than other practices. And family devotions are one of those. They're one of the most, if you're gonna boil it down, one of the single most important things a family can do, especially for formal instruction. 
And listen, they're hard. If you, if you look at it in my house, you would see how hard it is. I mean, I feel like we're kind of falling forward and failing forward with it. We're constantly having to retool and restart and it, it, they're hard to do. But, but I think they are worth the effort to do them. A guy named Chap Bettis, he wrote a book called The, the Disciple-Making Family. It's actually out on our resource table. It is a wonderful book to help you along as you're trying to make disciples of your kids, The Disciple-Making Family. Listen to what he says in his book. He says, there is something about family devotions that seem to wrap a number of spiritual dynamics in one package. A man is reminded of his appointment as pastor of his family. It's a good reminder. The children are reminded of their authority under dad and mom. Everyone is reminded of the centrality, the authority and the necessity of God's word. Doing family devotions ties all of those sort of things together. Now, here's my assumption in the room. I think most people in the room probably agree. Family devotions probably are a good idea. That's a good thing to do. But in their extensive research, here's what they have found. 90% of families don't do them. Nine out of 10 have no sort of, I mean, anywhere in the, the realm of consistent family devotions. And, and, you know, I wish we had more time to talk through the nuts and bolts of that, uh, the hows of that. The, the, obviously, it, it varies depending on the age of your kids, all those things. And I think that would be a wonderful conversation to initiate in your home group this week of what could that look like in, in our lives. And, and if it doesn't go well in your home group this week, find older, godly, mature couples who are, who are in front of you in parenting and ask them, learn from them, to try to get a sense of what that could look like in your own life. And I just wanna commend to you, opening up the Bible in your home and reading it and praying it is a, is a place to start. Um, it, the New City Catechism is a wonderful resource. It just gives you simple questions and answers that teach us great theology. You can pick up a little booklet out on the resource table. You can download that for free on your iPad, the New City Catechism. If you've got young kids, make sure you get a Jesus Storybook Bible and every night read that with your kiddos. It's just a, a really simple tool to use in the context of your home. But for all of us, it's let's fail forward in that. And let's fall forward as we're trying to figure out what it looks like to do more of the intentional instruction. But another way that we diligently teach our kids is through informal instruction. And Deuteronomy 6 has a lot of this in it. In Deuteronomy 6, it, it shows you a lot of the informal instruction. You shall teach them diligently to your children, verse 7. Then it goes on. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. When you sit in your house. Sort of sounds like dinner. So it's like, you're just on your way. You're doing dinner. It's a normal thing that you do. And it's just, how do you maximize dinner? How do you take advantage of your dinner time moment? That's just something that as, a, as a parent, you should put thought into that. How do we maximize dinner for instruction, informal instruction? And, you know, and again, we fall and fail in all these things in a million different ways. It's a constant struggle for us. But here's generally what it looks like in our house. We still have fairly young kids. So we pray for attributes of God. Every time we sit down to eat dinner, we pray that God is big, God is strong, God is good, and God is love. Then we leave our Christmas cards up through the year. We're that family. Have them hanging on our window um, by our dinner table. And we typically uh, grab a card and we pray for that a family at dinner time. So we just leave those up there as a way to think about our friends and to pray for our friends. And then we just try to use dinner time to mine the hearts of our kids. We typically do like a highs and lows. What's the high of your day, the low of your day? Just, just mining their hearts to see what's going on in their life to try to figure out how we can connect Jesus into their life. It's just, and, and this is what the, the, this guy is saying in Deuteronomy. He just, as you sit informally instruct just how can you weave Jesus and the good news of Jesus into your everyday life. So he says, when you sit, then he goes on. And when you walk by the way, that's just as you are going, as you're doing what you do in life together. And now think about the way God's created the world. God's created a world that reveals him in a billion different ways. As a parent, it's not weird to talk about God in your everyday life. It's weird not to. Because everywhere you look, like God can be seen and God, God, God can be perceived through the world around us. But the problem with kids is they come out of the womb without the ability to see God around them and everything around them. A kid does not come out seeing that. They have to be shown that. 
Somebody has to instruct them in those ways. And part of the privilege of parenting is God has given you the, the, the job of helping your kids see Jesus in everything. As you're playing catch, as you're in the backyard, as you're driving, as you're doing everything you're doing, God has given you the privilege of having eyes that are open to God in everything around you and then helping your kids see God in everything around them. So a, a week ago Saturday, our family was at a funeral. And it's just an opportunity to talk about Jesus, to talk about hell and the, the, the terrible nature of hell, to talk about heaven and the, the wonder of heaven, to dream about what heaven will be like, um, to talk about we're all going to be in that casket sooner than we think. So we should think about how not to waste our life, how to live for the things now that are going to mean most to us then. Just an opportunity to talk about those sort of things. Um, yesterday, I was helping a guy with a project all day long. And uh, the guy I was helping, he had a son about Caleb's age. And so he and Caleb hang out all day and Caleb gets back in the truck. I'm like, man, how was the day? And he's like, man, it was awesome. Titus was awesome. I loved hanging out with him. And just, he just went off about Tyson, how good of a friend Tyson is now. And we just had a moment of like, man, that, that, that feel that you just have a friendship, God created that feeling that you just felt so that we could look at God and no, it's a signpost pointing us to God and God has invited us to be friends with him. Isn't that crazy to think about? That, that God would look at Abraham and call Abraham a friend. That he would look at us and through Jesus invite us into friendship. It's just connecting Jesus into every moment of your life, showing Jesus in everything that you're doing. He says, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, he says, and when you lie down, kind of sounds like bedtime. He's just saying you're connected into everything in your life. I often think about the heart of our kids. We have three kids, 10, eight, and seven. And I often think about their hearts as a flower. And, you know, kids, kids live on the surface. They're just experiencing life up here. And most of the time, the, the flower of their heart is closed. It's not open. And you're living life with them and it's closed and you're learning about them and you're just living life beside them. But there's these precious, sacred moments that God gives us where the flower of their heart opens and you can see all the way in it. And I've just found that at least for our kids, that most often happens in that last 10 to 15 minutes of the day, that bedtime moment. And Laura in particular, my wife, she just does such a wonderful job of this. I, it was Saturday night, obviously last night, and I'm just sitting there kind of working away on, on the sermon, kind of thinking through a couple of different parts of it. And she and Eva, she'd already put the other two kids down. She and Eva, our seven-year-old, are on the couch. And, uh, and I just was overhearing the conversation they were having. And it was just such a beautiful moment, just such a beautiful moment. And I just wanna encourage every parent in the room, don't miss those. It's that fast. Don't miss those sacred, precious moments that God gives you to, to see that, that beautiful flower of your kid's heart open. And listen, you can't manufacture those. That's why you have to spend time with your kids. You've gotta be there when those moments happen. So he says, when you lie down, and then he says, and when you rise. He's just making the case for gospel saturation. Like in every moment of your life, you're always in everything informally instructing. You're saturating your day in, day out life with your kids in a way that they're learning about Jesus. They're learning about the good news of Jesus. And here's why saturation is so important. Your kids learn in bite-sized chunks, not big meals. This is how they learn. Listen to J.C. Ryle, the old Anglican bishop. Listen to him describe this. He says, we must not expect all things at once with our children. We must remember what children are and teach them as they are able to bear. Their minds are like a lump of metal, not to be forged and made useful all at once, but only by a succession of little blows. Their understanding, their understandings are like, I love this imagery, it's like a narrow necked vessel and we must pour in the wine of knowledge gradually or much of it will be spilled and lost. The best way to build the bank account of your kid's heart is in those small faithful deposits day in, day out of gospel saturation. So it's through formal instruction. But then Deuteronomy also shows us one more through modeling. Look at verses eight and nine of Deuteronomy chapter six. He says, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write all these things that I've commanded you. He's saying, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. 
Now, I love what this passage does. The passage starts by saying that the love of God has to be inside of you. If you're going to pass it along, you have to possess it. But then at the end of the passage, in verses 8 and 9, it tells us that the love of God should also be seen on the outside of us. Like, you should be writing it everywhere. You should be doing things that are showing that love of God. I think this is a good thing for every parent to wrestle through. Our sons and daughters ought to learn what it looks like to follow Jesus by watching us. That's, that's how a kid should learn. This is, this is not new information. Everyone in the room knows the best way anyone learns is by modeling. We all learn through the eye much better than we do through the ear. We, we all learn by watching it go down in front of us. This is one of the reasons that Paul, in what I think is, a, is in some ways a terrifying passage, in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 says, be imitators of me as I imitate Jesus. Now, every parent sh- should be saying that to their kid. Imitate me as I imitate you. Isn't that scary as a parent? Because you know all of your weaknesses, right? Now, hear me. Th- that is not saying you have to be perfect as a parent, but it is saying we need to be quick to repent right? Quick to own our our shortcomings and our failings. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Parents, what your kids see, they will one day be. This is how God has designed it to work. Our kids learn through modeling, through us showing them in our everyday life what it looks like to follow Jesus. Now, I'm going to take a two-minute tangent, and, and I need to apply this to the church as a whole for a moment. This duty that we have toward the next generation to stand in the gap between the next generation to say, no, 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 don't, don't move toward your ruin. Don't reject God, but no, no, run after God as a good father. This duty to re-evangelize the next generation is not just a parent to child duty. It is a church to the next generation duty. This is something we all have to have our, our hands stacked on. This sermon and what we're talking about is equally applicable to a 23-year-old single person as it is to a 65-year-old empty nester as it is to a 35-year-old with some kids in their home. It's equally applicable across the board of that. This sort of a, of a passage is an invitation for our entire church family to, to own and to receive a responsibility for the next generation. For, for all of us to do that. We all have to have our hands stacked on, yes, we are in for redeeming the next generation, to re-evangelizing the next generation. This is why every time we do a baby dedication, we as a church say this to the parents up here. This is part of what we say to the church. We say this to them. We believe, as a church, we believe that raising godly children is a church-wide command. And in this holy moment, you as parents and we as your church family Covenant together to redeem the next generation and to be faithful in handing down the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we as a church are committing to. We're all stacking our hands and saying yes to that. And I was just thinking last night about the many people who are outside of just Laura and I have influenced and have helped stand in the gap between our kids and the ruin their hearts want. And we've had a lot of people do that. We, we, they, they have a lot of, of, of quasi-grandparents across our church family. And I was thinking in particular about the important role that our kids' ministry has played in that. I had this precious moment with Caleb, our middle, our son, uh, middle son, a couple of weeks ago. Um, on Saturday night, I typically spend a few hours looking over and reading over and kind of working out a few parts of the sermon. And it's not uncommon for Caleb to crawl up in my lap on Saturday night and uh, to want to know what I'm going to preach on. And so he did it that night. He, he crawled up and he asked, what am I preaching on? And I said, well, I'm thinking right now about the idea of what it means to love God. I'm gonna talk about that tomorrow. And, um, and Caleb then said, dad, do you think that I love God? And we talked a little bit about what it means to love God, what it looks like to love God. We talked a little bit about that. And then Caleb said, uh, I know a person who loves God. And I said, well, who? And he said, Chase Tidmore loves God. And I'm like, oh my gosh, my heart just melted. Now, how does Caleb know that Chase Tidmore loves God? Because Chase Tidmore serves in our kids' ministry week in, week out, and teaches them about the things of God. Caleb gets to interact with him every Sunday 
around our kids' ministry. And I just thank God for that. And part of what it means for us to have our hands stacked on redeeming the next generation is that we're in on our kids' ministry. That is a, this morning, there's 40, 50, 60 people serving our kids, standing with parents in between our kids and what their dark hearts want, saying, let's together follow Jesus. That's what they're saying. And I just, we all need to be in on that. That's a wonderful place to serve. They're always needing more people willing to say, I wanna stand in the gap between our kids and, and what their hearts want. I, I wanna be a part of redeeming the next generation. So I'm just praying God might lay that on your heart to jump in there. It's a wonderful application of this particular passage. And lastly, and we'll end here, Psalm 127, it reveals our dependence. It reveals our dependence. It reveals our dependence. Let's just take a step back and look at this psalm as a whole. Verses one and two. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. This psalm reminds us that, first of all, we have something to do. There's cities to be built. There's cities to be watched over. Those are categorical things of all the things God would call us to do in our life, like raising a family and parenting and all those sorts of things, right? So, so there's something we are to do. There's jobs to do. He's, he's given us things to do. But this psalm also reminds us that we are dependent upon God because God's doing, not ours, is decisive, I wanna say that one more time. It's showing us that we do have something to do, that there is something we all should be doing with and for Jesus. But this Psalm is also reminding us that in all of our doing, we are dependent upon God because God's doing, not ours, is decisive. If I were to slide a survey in front of you and in that survey was the question, what, what is the greatest weakness in your relationship with the Lord? What, what is your greatest weakness? I think it's not a stretch to say that for virtually everyone in the room, our greatest weakness is our own self-sufficiency, our own self-reliance. This way of seeing that says, God, I, I, I really think I've got it. You know, if I get in a pinch, I'll, I'll holler at you, but I, I think I've got what I need. I think I've got the, the mind. I think I've got the ability. I think I've got the wisdom and resources to do this. And listen, our culture is totally seeding that thought. It's discipling us to think like that. I mean, what is the model man in America? It's that self-made man. The only problem with the self-made man is according to the scriptures, it's an illusion. It doesn't exist. There is no such thing as a self-made man. When Jesus is teaching on this in John 15, five, he says it this way, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. It's he that can actually do something. But apart from me, you can do nothing, not nothing. Do, do you believe that? That apart from Jesus, you can do nothing, that he really is the decisive doer. I mean, we need to feel this for a moment. We cannot on our own accomplish anything of lasting and eternal value. You can't, I can't. We can't accomplish anything on our own of lasting or eternal value. This is Solomon's point in Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Just to help you see how self-sufficiency is at work or isn't in work, at work in your life, I think prayer is the gateway into seeing it. So think about pr prayer on this side and self-sufficiency on this side. They have an inverse relationship. So the, the more prayerfulness is in your life, the, the more dependency is in your life. So, so prayerfulness is, is inversely related to self-reliance. When you're praying, you're saying to God, I'm dependent upon you. That's the reason I'm praying right now is God, I can't, but you can. So God, will you please come and do it? That, that is a heart that is, is praying. Prayerlessness, on the other hand, is the heart that's, that's self-reliant. It is looking at the world and saying, God, I can, I can. If I need you, if I get in a pinch, I'll call upon you, but I can. Therefore, I'm prayerless. 
So just look at your life and ask yourself the question, does prayer in your life, is it showing you a picture of self-sufficiency and self-reliance or of dependency in your life? Now let's apply this to parenting for a moment. Here's what Psalm 127 is showing us about parenting. Prayer is your most important parenting work. Prayer is your most important parenting work. And as Paul Miller says in his book, A Praying Life, until you're convinced that you can't change the heart of your child, you won't take prayer seriously. Until you're convinced that you can't build the heart of your child, you can't make the heart of your child, you can't, you don't have the ability to form and fashion it. Until you're convinced that you don't have the ability to change your child's heart, you won't take prayer seriously. Until you know deep down, I mean, deep in your bones that, that you can sharpen the blade and you can shape the limb, but unless the Lord forms the arrow, it will never fly straight. Unless you believe that you'll never pray like you should. Let me finish here. I know that for many of us in the room, we are struggling through wayward children. Children that are currently rejecting Jesus, running from Jesus, just choosing every means available other than Jesus to try to find satisfaction in life, joy in life. And I know that many this morning are just brokenhearted because of that. that you came in and you can't hear the idea of parenting without just grieving in such a deep way over your kiddo. And I think so often what parents want to do when we see our kids struggling and we see our, our kids rejecting Jesus and running in the other way is there's this natural tendency to want to clamp down with control, thinking that if we can just control them enough, then we'll change them. If we do X, Y, and Z and put it in that combination, they're going to be different. We're going to fix them. That's what we're going to do. And can I just tell you, that's not the answer. It's not the answer. You can't change the heart of your child. I can't change the heart of my kid. This is what Psalm 127 is reminding us of that unless the Lord builds the house, we just were laboring in vain. That the answer is not to clamp down in control. Oftentimes that just makes it worse. That the answer is we lean into dependency, begging the Lord, the decisive doer to act. And I wanna just share one story from church history with you. There was a lady named Monica and she had a child and her child was rebellious. And he, he would self-admittedly say that he was terrible, that uh, he didn't just like being bad, he loved being praised for being bad. He tells the story of, of at one point stealing from a man, stealing food from a man, not because he was hungry, but just because he wanted to steal something. He was addicted to sex in his life. I mean, just one thing after another. He, he was... Everything in his life was a rejection of God. And she was brokenhearted, devastated, grieving. And at one point she goes to the bishop in her city and she just pours her heart out to the bishop of her city, the, the pastor there in her town. Just grieving and through tears expressing her grief over her son. And the bishop in response said this back to her. Monica, leave him alone. Just pray to God for him. Just, just pray for him. Open up and beg the Lord on his behalf. And then the bishop went on to say, leave me and go in peace. And then he said this last phrase, turns out to be a really famous one. He said, it cannot be that the son of these tears should be lost. It cannot be that the son of these tears should be lost. And he was right. Augustine, who is one of the most influential people in church history, 
was soon thereafter sitting in a park on a bench and there heard what sounded like the, uh, the cry of an infant say, take up the book and read. And there in that park, he opens the Bible to Romans 13. And there in that park over Romans 13, the decisive doer, God rescued him. Rescued him. And later, Augustine said this about his mom, Monica. She shed more tears over my spiritual death than most mothers shed for the bodily death of their sons. That woman, and I hope that, that we'll imitate her, she knows unless the Lord builds the house, we labor, we're building in vain. So will you pray with me? And I just, I wanna take a moment of putting that into practice for us to, to, for us to pour our hearts out to God. for us to pray for the next generation, for us to ask the Lord, the decisive doer to redeem and rescue the next generation. And I know many parents in this room are struggling through children that are wayward. And this is an opportunity for you to pour out your heart to God, to ask the Lord to redeem and to rescue. And if there is one key to parenting, I think this is the key, that we first have to be parented by God. We first have to know God is our good dad. We first have to adopt the posture of a son or a daughter ourselves. that the posture of a child, humble, needy, weak before him, willing to lean upon his strong arm. And we do that through prayer. And we're gonna finish our time now with communion. And I'm so grateful for that because when you take the bread, you are being reminded of the broken body of Jesus. His body broken under the weight of your sin, crushed under God's wrath for your sin. And when you dip it in the juice, you're being reminded of God's blood that was spilled for all of our parenting blunders all of our parenting sins, you're being reminded that you have been cleansed and washed because of the perfect life of Jesus. You're being reminded when you dip the bread into the juice that the spirit of God now lives in you to empower new acts of love, new faithfulness towards your kids. So, oh God, would you help us now? Would you... Would you be at work in this room and in our souls? And it's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.